Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Oh, but don't dial right this second because you're already a few minutes too late. Uh, Carolyn and Alice and Angie and Matt all got in ahead of you. But uh, we've got three hours to talk this morning. You'll have lots more opportunities and so many things to talk about. This is a very nice Sunday morning out there. Feels a little bit more like July, but boy, the mornings are still just so beautiful. I mean... I seems like most years you know, we're pushing 80 degrees at this time of the morning or even higher. And uh, having these temperatures in the low to mid 70s, uh, you just really can't complain too much. All you guys that thought the rain was just too much and everything was too wet, you should be happy because the next week looks pretty dry. It's just not a lot to not a lot to be uh, complaining about weather-wise here in South Texas. And anyway, let's talk about what is on your mind, and uh, we'll start up Fort Worth Wade. Good morning, Carolyn. Ah, uh, Carolyn dropped. That's probably what that buzz was. Just uh, well, then Alice would be next in line. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Bob. Good uh, morning. I called you a couple of weeks ago about this melon or whatever it is that's growing on my trellis. And right. uh, it is so big, it must weigh over 10 pounds now. Wow. I don't know what it is, but it looks like a cantaloupe peeling. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this is maybe a suggestion, mental suggestion, that when I pass by, I smell cantaloupe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it it should be good, whatever it is, and uh, being a big fond of uh, nice cold cantaloupe, I hope that's exactly what it turns out to be. Well, but can you tell me if it is for sure? Because I don't know what I did. There was a small one about the size of a baseball that uh, had, had turned kind of yellow and was rotten underneath, so I cut it in half, and it did smell like cantaloupe and had that peachy color. So Well... One one sure way to tell the difference in uh, a cantaloupe and at least between that and watermelons is the seed will be all in sort of a central cavity within the fruit, whereas in most melons, uh, the seed will be kind of interspersed throughout the, the fleshy part that we eat, but the cantaloupe always has that just kind of that central cavity with all the seed concentrated inside of it, and that's going to differentiate it from most from most other melons. But um, I think until you uh, until you slice it and taste it, you won't know for sure. You know what the the standard outside is. Again, most melons have a smooth skin. Cantaloupe, of course, has that kind of netty um, skin with a you know, sort of a lighter brown over a darker underneath layer. So um, looking at those. Things uh, on the outside, and having looked at the inside of uh, one that didn't finish uh, developing, that should give you a pretty good indication whether it is or isn't a cantaloupe. Well, it does look like that, but uh, I um, I embraced this one, or at least I cradled it with uh, a piece of uh, a metal cage thing that I had, and it's mm-hmm. fine. But now I've got 
eight or nine other melons there that are getting so big, and I don't know <laughs> what to what to cradle them with, or I don't know what to do to keep them. From, they're hanging on a trellis, and I'm afraid mm-hmm. they're so heavy they're going to tear the uh, the vine. Well, I'll tell you tell you what a number of lady friends of mine use is old pantyhose. You know, wrap around it's nice and soft and spreads out and supports the you know, supports the weight of the whole thing uh without any great problem. Uh had an old gentleman friend over in Seguin and he actually fashioned a little platform that he could hook onto the fence just a flat piece of wood and then uh, you know a, a little one that's uh vertical and then another one uh screwed or nailed to the bottom that's horizontal and then just a little couple little hooks to kind of hook it over the fence wire and uh, that's what richard used to support and uh he was an old potato farmer from up in minnesota and he grew lots of really good cantaloupe and that's how he supported his so uh, those are two. Those are two ideas for things that I've seen lots of other folks use. Well, I've got six of them hanging on these trellises, and there's <laughs> that's a whole day's work or more for me. Um, oh, but think of think of it saved you uh, uh, several trips to the grocery store, and uh, uh, you know if it were me, I might look around if you have friends or neighbors that uh, happen to love fresh cantaloupe and say, you know, I'm going to have some really good cantaloupe. Could you give me a little hand in the garden to be sure that they ripen properly? <laughs> well, do you uh, think that um, uh, there is? this is a different variety? This little thing came up by itself. You told me to put uh, the... Um, uh, what is it? Spread that when I had nematodes on my tomato yeah. roots... And yeah. you told me to spread this um, Elbin rye seed. Uh huh. Yes, that's what I spread, and there was nothing else. I didn't plant this. I don't know how it came up. And is there a variety that makes them this size? This is large, huge. There are two on the ground, and this one hanging, and there's one above it, and then there's four on the other trellis. And I'm, I don't know. Anyway, I did send you a picture of that. Uh, to the email, I believe it is. My son did it because his phone will do that. Did you okay, get it? Well, I, yeah, I don't usually check our company email. I'll ask the folks that do. I, I haven't seen that yet, but I'll sure ask them about it. But yes, there are, there are large cantaloupe, but I think the, pretty much the dividing thing, whether, and you know, birds tend to plant the seed all the time. Anything that, that loves that flesh and eats it, the seeds tend to pass through the digestive tract without much change. And, uh, that's how birds end up planting things all around for us. But uh, if the skin is rough, it is almost certainly something closely kin to a cantaloupe. If it were a melon, if it were a squash, if it were a cucumber, you would expect to have a very smooth skin on it. So I think that from what you told me, the indications are pretty good uh, that it is most likely a cantaloupe. Same thing's true. Uh, there are a lot of gourds out there. I, I have around my property... Uh, I have gourds regularly that I don't know whether it's rodents or birds plant, but I some some of them have kind of a warty skin, but none of, none of them have that kind of net-like skin that a cantaloupe does. So that's what the outside of them looks like. I think there's a pretty darn good chance they're cantaloupes. Well, I can't imagine this size, though. Uh, I, that's why I thought it was a different variety. So well, if- you're you're just such a good gardener, things grow a little bit better for you. Well, if you see this picture today, would you just say something on the air so that I can hear it? 
whether or not you think it truly is a cantaloupe? I'll be more than happy to do so. All right. Well, thank you much. It's my pleasure, Alice. Thank you for the call this morning. All right. uh, Next up is Angie. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I had I had a Meyer lemon that came through the freeze real well, and it's getting real big. And uh-huh. I want to you to you, I want you to talk me through how to make one that I can put in a pot and I can put in the greenhouse, so I won't have to worry so much about freezing. So how how can I make a cutting and make another tree? Well, um, citrus is not normally propagated from cuttings, but it certainly can be. Uh, Here's the issue with citrus. If you do it from a cutting, it will have a very weak and wimpy root system for about two years, and you're going to have to support it. You're going to have to be sure that it doesn't, you know, bend or break in the wind because uh, Mm -hmm. uh, that this is one reason that citrus is almost always grafted because it's grafted onto a rootstock that has a tap root that makes, you know, a very strong plant from day one but now if you want to grow it from a cutting uh, you certainly can it would be um, you can give it a try this time of year and because the foliage the wood should be mature so should be pretty successful with it but you'll Mm -hmm. just take um, little tips of the branches however many of them you want to try to start and figure that probably only about half of them are going to work out so if you want to have Uh three trees go ahead and take six cuttings but uh, they should be about uh, about four inches long strip a couple of the lower leaves off so that you can stick the bottom two inches down in the rooting medium Uh, you'll take your cuttings I would soak them probably for two or three hours in a solution of liquid seaweed and water Um, you don't need to make a lot if you made up you know a pint of uh, of the solution you put maybe a couple of tablespoons of liquid seaweed to a pint of water soak your cuttings there the rooting medium that I like for actually most everything that I'm going to root uh, is perlite p-e-r-l-i-t-e mm-hmm. uh, the right. you know that medium and right. then you just simply take a clean pot uh, fill it with perlite uh, you can put all six cuttings in the same pot you can probably put 20 cuttings in the same pot if you wanted to and keep the perlite moist all the time put your cuttings in an area where it's bright but doesn't have direct hot sun um, there's no way that you will ever keep them too wet that's the nice thing about perlite is that it uh, the nature of the material is like a volcanic ore that's heated and it pops like popcorn and uh, it's always got plenty of oxygen um, right. in and around the developing roots so uh, I mean you could you could mist over it 20 times a day and it would absolutely love you for it but it's important that the perlite stay moist and uh, again if you have a chance to just kind of mist over it with water do it every time you think about it probably take about eight to ten weeks for them to root and uh but once they root you know they you know then you'll transfer them to soil then you'll grow them just like you would any other woody shrub just with the exception that you're going to need to just keep them braced up or staked up for a couple of years because instead of having the root that goes straight down like it would if it were grafted these roots are going to mm-hmm. be lateral the, the initial ones are going to be oh. spreading out to the side which are not nearly as strong but you give it the protection three four years down the road it's going to be just as good as any other Meyer lemon tree out there well thanks i'm going to give it a try and uh see what happens very good. The nice, the ni- 
Well, it's my pleasure. The nice thing about it, too, is since it's not grafted, if we have another severe winter and it freezes back partially or something, you'll always know that you don't have to worry about it sprouting out from the rootstock because there is no separate plant that's a rootstock. Your plant is 100% Meyer lemon, so anything that sprouts out anywhere up and down the stem is always going to be a Meyer lemon. So uh, there, like I say, there, there are pluses and minuses to almost everything in life, and that's, that's the negative and the positive of growing a, a woody plant from a cutting. So uh, you give it a try and let me know how it works out. I'll look forward to hearing, Angie. I'm lost, Bob. I'm getting intermittent signals, so thanks for well, just, I'll take that and I'll get to work. Very good. Let me know how it works for you. Thanks, thanks so, so much. much. You're welcome. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, Madam Victor will be up next in just a second, but I get to take a minute here and talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way. You know, it's, uh, I uh, told a friend up in Bernie this past week about how highly I think of her Curamed product, which is a, a turmeric, a curcumin product. And uh, he was saying, well, or where am I going to find it? I'm going to send my wife out looking for it today. And I said, well, there's only one place I'd recommend, and that's Rhonda's Nature's Way. Rhonda just has everything that you need in the way of supplements, in the way of good vitamins. Quality so much, just so different and so much better than what you're going to get on the grocery store shelves or a chain pharmacy. Plus, you've got the benefit of years and years of expertise. Whether you're talking to Rhonda or daughter-in-law or mom, everybody at Rhonda's Nature's Way, is extraordinarily knowledgeable about good health. And let me tell you, Rhonda has all the best of everything. They do the uh, light therapies, both red light therapy and beamer light therapy, both of which widely accepted by the medical uh, profession. I do these at both stores. She does reflexology at the Northside store. Doing a, a new foot foot bath treatment that uh, it, you know can just make your feet feel absolutely wonderful. You get so much more when you visit Rhonda's Nature's Way. If you're dieting, she has incredible foodstuffs and uh, even if you're not dieting, just it's nice to know that the granola that you're putting on my cereal or putting on your cereal is just like what I've gotten from her. It's free from sugars. It's all natural. And if you are dieting but you still have that sweet tooth, man, she's even got dark chocolate candy bars sweetened with monk fruit rather than uh, refined sugar. You just need to pay a visit to Rhonda's Nature's Way. Not today, though. Always closed on Sunday but open the other six days. Southside stores on Southwest Military, Northside store in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Matt and Victor and Carolyn and Liz, and it's Matt's turn. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, a couple of three quick ones for you. Okay. Uh, in, in 200 words or less, tell me what you know about a little pod called a pearl milkweed there are many different um milkweeds out there that is not one of them that i am familiar with but most all the milkweeds are um you know the good thing about them is that they serve as a larval host for a number of uh, different butterflies uh several of them are larval hosts to uh monarch butterflies um, some of them are considered weedy, but I can't think of any of them that are spiny or really have a lot of bad qualities other than they're just, you know, growing fairly vigorously. Uh, have to do a little research to find out about the one called the pearl milkweed, but, uh, that's just a common name that I'm, I'm not familiar with. 
Yeah, I found this one on the internet. It's uh, kind of a long pod, about uh, four or five inches long. It's got little bumps on it. And then when it splits open, it's got the little furry hair, spiny. Yeah, yeah. What is its claim to fame? Why are they saying you should send the money for it? Uh, basically, what you just said about the monarchs. Okay, okay. Um, be careful because there are a lot of milkweeds, including the ones that, uh, uh, unfortunately, so often some garden groups around here promote. Uh, they're, uh, the most common one is called uh, Asclepius tuberosa, and it simply doesn't grow well in our heat. I've seen it growing up, uh, well, when I visited Rodale Farms up in Pennsylvania. It does beautifully up there, and here it just slowly withers over time. So be real careful, and um, be sure you've got one that is heat tolerant. Uh, the one we call uh, uh, Mexican milkweed, the Asclepius uh, curvasica, is probably the one I think that grows best in this area. And um, it's, you know, they're all, like I say, they're, they're great plants. Uh, many of them are very, very ornamental, very attractive plants. But um, just, again, some of them are just simply not as heat tolerant. So be real careful. And, you know, the, the one thing that the catalogs and the Internet never tell you, uh, they want to base their recommendations on plants on what they call the plant hardiness zones. USDA is assigned, you know, throughout the United States what they call a hardiness zone map. But all on earth that tells you is what the annual minimum temperature usually is. We're somewhere around zone 9 uh, they move us back and forth since we're getting warmer. It used to be zone 8. Now they say zone 9.5 or 10. But all that tells you is what the average low temperature is. It says absolutely nothing about the heat. So if you're reading about this and it says great in zone 7 through 10 or whatever, all they're telling you is it's not going to freeze in the winter. They're, they're not telling you whether it's going to survive a hot summer. So uh, I'd, I'd certainly find out something about its heat tolerance before I send any money. Well, we, we're not going to spend the money because this thing is growing wild on the uh, property. Oh, okay. In a, in a big, stringy, curly vine. Okay. So already, already got them. <laughs> but we were just curious. We had never seen them before and go, what the heck is this? I, you know, I'm I'm not really familiar with many vining milkweeds. Most of them are bushier in nature, and uh, let's say some of them grow from like a expanded tuberous root. So uh, it sounds interesting. Uh, the the uh, um, interesting thing to see will be, especially when the monarchs do their fall migration, you see if they are indeed attracted to it, because there, there are a few plants out there that are touted as real butterfly magnets that I've never seen a butterfly on, so I'll be interested in hearing back from you about how this one works out for you. I would save uh, some of the seed, if you can, if it has made seed pods, um, because you never know when you know, Mother Nature or something else might do away with the big plant that you have, and it'd always be fun to have a backup so you can grow more in the future if you like. Uh, second question. Uh, we've got a lemon tree that's in a current pot. Uh, the tree itself is about uh, two feet tall. We're going to transplant it. Suggestions? And how big is the pot that it's in now? Right now it's probably about maybe a five-gallon, seven-gallon Okay, are you are you going to put it in the ground, or are you going to put it in another pot? Well, the area that we live in is a very hard, rocky soil, and mm -hmm. other trees that we've tried have not done well, so we're going to put this okay. in a big pot that's probably 
uh, about uh, three feet across and about uh, three feet deep. Okay, well, I have to tell you in general that is a big mistake because um, plants, you know, a, a big pot is very hard to regulate the moisture in. And putting a small plant in a big pot, a lot of times, like I say, it's just hard to get the water right and the plants do not thrive well. When you're going to grow anything in a pot, you know, with a few exceptions, some woody things like crepe myrtles and all, but the best procedure is to move it up a little bit at a time in other words if it's in a five gallon pot now and it's two feet tall that really doesn't need a bigger pot probably for two years and when it does you go from a five gallon pot to maybe a seven or a ten gallon pot ultimately to a 15 gallon pot and then perhaps finally into your whiskey barrel size container so my advice to you if you want to get it into this big container is to, uh, with its existing pot, just kind of sink that pot down in the ground. And when you water, don't water the whole thing because you're going to get that thing. Water doesn't evaporate and go away. The water that you put onto a potted plant, um, a very high percentage of it, the way it is used up is it's taken up through the plant in the process we call transpiration, lost out through the leaves. And so if you've got this great big pot and you've got it really, really wet, it's going to stay really, really, really wet because a two-foot-tall plant cannot transpire much water at all. So if you're anxious to get it into that big pot, like I say, leave it in its uh, 10-inch pot or so that it's in. Set that down in uh, into your bigger pot. Uh, if the tree decides to root through the bottom of its existing pot, you know, so be it. When the time comes, you can just, uh, you know, pull some soil back and just cut off the sides of that pot and let it stay where it is. But uh, I, I, you, you will do much, much better increasing the pot size gradually than taking a little plant like that and putting it into a great big pot. Okay. And last quick one. Uh, your friends up there at, uh, was it Soil and Stone? Yeah, stone and soil. Uh, stone and soil. Would they be a good go-to source to try to combat soil erosion? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, if you're if you're looking for mulch, if you're looking for you know some kind of uh, decayed granite or something like that that you could put on the surface to retard erosion, uh, certainly would be my. Uh, uh, depending on the situation, uh, my choice would probably be somewhere like Douglas King Seed, where I could get some sort of vegetation that's going to hold the soil in place much better. I mean, just about any soil out there is going to wash or erode, but if it's like on a steep slope or something like that, there are different things, usually grasses, that form a dense root system that's going to be probably the you know, best way to hold the soil in place. And if you're looking for something like that, uh, Dean over at Douglas King Seed can help you pick out the most appropriate grass. The other thing, I mean, there, there are other plants you can plant, uh, some of the liripes and things like that that you could almost put contour-wise on the slope uh, would help hold it. But as far as having good soil to begin with and perhaps good mulch to put on top, realizing that if we get a you know torrential rain even your mulch is going to float and erode but uh stone and soil has in general the best quality uh, of soils of anyone in the area that i'm familiar with okay and king seed you said, is that the one that's from ww white uh yes on uh-huh. douglas king seed dkc.com if you're looking at it on the internet big white building it's over there off the from the, off the freeway 
because I'm over here on the um, side. I wouldn't and, call it a big white building. They've got three giant <laughs> metal warehouses. I've never really paid much attention to the building itself, but uh, uh, they've they've been around for I think close to a hundred years. But uh, when I I think of my I think of uh, three big metal warehouses, not a white building. So need to check and be sure that's where you're looking at. Okay, but it's Douglas Kings. Douglas King Seed, yes. Good. Okay. That'll do it, Bob. Thank you. You're sure welcome, Matt. Thanks for the call this morning. All right. We better get a break out of the way here, and then it'll be uh, Victor and Carolyn and Liz, and uh, I get to talk to you for a moment about Fannix Nursery and Garden Center. And once again, such a pleasure to talk about friends, and uh, people say, why do you advertise for your competitors? And I say, they're not competitors. They're just friends that happen to be in the same business I'm in. And you're not going to find any better people, plant people, true plantsmen, people who love their jobs and love plants. It's just what you can find when you go to Fannix. And uh, I've known all three generations of Fannix, and now the fourth one getting uh, getting started into the business. Fannix has been there for over 80 years. Ten acres of ground. They've got room to have a bit of everything. They're known for their crepe myrtles, and they've got uh, quite a selection of crepe myrtles this summer, like every summer. And lots of color, too. Lots of tropical colors out there, plus a lot of uh, perennials and things that qualify for the SAWS uh, Water Saver Rebate Program. They've got all the organic materials we talk about, including organic fire ant bait. Boy, the fire ants are bad this summer, and I don't want to see you dumping uh, that real toxic stuff out there, but fans can certainly help you with the non-toxic fire ant control products as well. Well, along with fertilizers, mulches, compost, all the other things you need. And keep in mind that Fanix is so much more than a nursery these days with things like the Traeger pellet grills and all the supplies for them. Things like your Ego lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment. You really need to check that stuff out sometime. I just I can hardly imagine starting a gasoline line trimmer or chainsaw or something like that once you discover how good and how powerful. Don't don't judge by what you saw on the market 10 years ago. Today's technology is absolutely amazing on this type of equipment. Lots of reasons to go see Fanix over on Home Green Road, right where they've been for over 80 years now. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this beautiful Sunday morning out there, and it's Victor's turn. Good morning, Victor. Good morning, Bob. I just have a few questions. Bob, That's what I'm here sigle... for. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Thank, you. Sure. Thank you. Can a sago palm be grown inside a, a building? It will not be close to natural light. It will be like in the lobby area. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Um. It will survive in that situation, uh, provided that it gets very, very bright light in the proper portion of the spectrum. In other words, uh, uh, plants, I mean, sunlight is made up of all the colors of the rainbow, as you know, every time you've looked at a rainbow. But the plants are very picky. The only plant that stimulates photosynthesis, I'm sorry, the only wavelength of light that stimulates uh, uh, photosynthesis is light in the blue end of the spectrum. So if you, the lighting system in this lobby 
is either fluorescent or the proper LEDs that are putting out lots of blue light, uh, a Sago will survive. I'm not sure it will be my first choice, but your question is, will it survive? Will it grow? And my answer is, if it's getting the right kind of light. Now, incandescent light bulbs, the old screw-in bulbs, which uh, mm-hmm. are kind of going away with uh, LED technology, those things were totally worthless as far as the plant was concerned because it's all yellow light, and for the plant, that's just black as midnight. So um, I realize it's a long answer to to a short question, but it will depend on the light source and the amount of light with the artificial light. But uh, artificial light of the right wavelength is just as good for plants as sunlight is. Oh, okay, Bob. And second question: I'm, I went to a nursery. What is the difference between all natural and organic, and what would be the numbers I am looking for in the bag? Oh, You're talking about, fer- about fertilizers. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, all natural probably means that the company didn't want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get the USADA certification that uh, promises you that it is organic. Um, <laughs> you just, uh, it would depend on the company. For instance, if it's, uh, Oh, uh, Medina, if it's Maestro Grow, if it's Nature's Creation, um, I would have no problems with just the word all natural. Others, I might have to look at it more carefully. And But the other part of your question is uh, really very, very interesting because to me, the numbers on a fertilizer bag are totally worthless. I don't even look at them anymore. And here's the reason, that many fertilizers... Um, the synthetically produced nitrogen that goes into them does not bind to the soil. We can talk about in depth sometime when I've got a blackboard to really show you. But uh, uh, the nutrient in many fertilizers is in what we call the anion state, and it is repelled by charges in the soil, and probably 90% of it washes away. So if you've got a 1959 fertilizer, your plants are actually only going to get 1.9%, not 19%. On the other hand, natural products, organic products, the nutrient is mainly in what we call the ammoniacal form, which is a cation, which binds to the soil, and your plants get 100% of it. So a 4% natural fertilizer is going to give you twice as much as a 19% synthetic fertilizer, if that makes sense. And that's why I don't even look at the numbers. I look to see what the ingredients are, and that'll tell me how much plant, how much benefit the plants are going to derive from it. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And my third question is, I've, we have some oak trees at our home, so mm-hmm. I've been about once a year putting some um, compost down followed by the cornmeal. Now, okay. is it better if I, I I've been, you put it putting it in that five-gallon bucket and letting it dilute for 24, 48 hours and then dumping it maybe about like a foot away from the trunk. What, what, mm-hmm. what works better? Just throwing it um, out? <coughs> well, it's, it's in effect, it's much more efficient when you do the liquid because the birds are not going to go after it and it doesn't take nearly as much of it. We put about two cups to a five-gallon bucket of water whereas two cups would not really cover very much surface area. So for a long time, all we did was to dry. That's all we knew, and it worked It worked reasonably well. But what we're learning, and you might go a little more than a foot out, not more than 10 feet out, but you might go just a little bit further out from the trunk, and uh, I would do it twice a year rather than once a year if it's oak wilt that you're concerned about. But uh, it really makes no difference at all. But in many ways, the liquid is more efficient and is certainly uh, more cost-effective. 
Oh, okay, Bob. Okay, well, thank you very much, Bob, and you have a good weekend. Well, you do the same, and keep in mind on the cornmeal. Now, just be sure that it's what they call whole ground, because it's not the cornmeal that's the magic. It's the uh, beneficial fungus called trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal. And if you buy that stuff at the grocery store, they call it enriched. They've taken away all the stuff that supports the trichoderma. So if you're buying it at HEB, you want to get stone ground. If you're buying it from a nursery or a feed store, uh, it's most likely going to be whole ground. And uh, just be sure that's what you that's what you get. It's a lot cheaper but it's the only one that really works for your purposes. So you do that, and you call me when you have more questions, Victor. Always here for you. I sure, I sure will, Bob. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. Goodbye. All right, Carolyn's up next. How are things in Fort Worth area this morning, Carolyn? Yes, well, I was first in line. I was multitasking, I was, and I accidentally pressed the the wrong button and got cut off. So oh, well, I I thought you might have had a more important call from a family member no, or uh, no. somebody calling to tell you that you'd won the lottery or something like that. Well, that would, that would have been a good reason. The lottery would have been a good reason, but I had no good reason. I was most, I was cutting up tomatoes to sun dry, and, and then I... When you said I was up, I, I picked up my phone and hit the wrong button. So here I am with my question. Well, okay. I'm glad you're there. Okay. How can I help? Okay. Well, uh, I want to buy a crepe myrtle tree. I've got mm-hmm. a place, uh, you know, in, in the bed where something died, and uh, I don't want a tall one. And I'm okay. seeing these called a black diamond. That's about the most I can find in the nurseries around here. And okay. so uh, they're limited, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eight to 10 how, mm-hmm. how tall ultimately would you like this crepe myrtle to grow? Oh, uh, maybe eight to ten feet would be nice. I, I don't want it any. I don't want it any taller. If I can okay. help it. Mm-hmm. Well, you there are lots of choices out there. Black diamond is they're unusual. They're new. And when I first saw one, I thought, wow, that's different. That's kind of neat. And after having mm-hmm. seen them for about three years now, I think, I don't like that color. I, I'd like the flowers, but I don't like black foliage on these things. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, be what sure. I feel. And I've co- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. There, there are, um, are, there, there are lots and lots of crepe myrtles out there. And you may, I mean, this may be a time you're a good gardener. You may, you know, might want to mail order one to, you know, get a variety yeah. you like. Uh, we saw we saw one that impressed me in the Atlanta Botanical Gardens last week. A new one called Purple Magic, and it was about eight or nine feet tall. And that was the most intense um, color I think I've seen in a long time. But I've not seen it available in the nursery trade yet. But it's probably out there. Uh, there's a good mm-hmm. little red one called Victor uh, that doesn't get real tall, but it's a beautiful dark red, and it would certainly mm-hmm. fill that build. Um, if mm-hmm. you want one that stops at about uh, four feet, I love the name, and it's it's kind of one of the watermelon red ones, but it's a beautiful, in fact, you almost make a hedge out of it, but it's called Pocomoke, P-O-C-O-M-O-K-E, I believe is how it's spelled, and uh, it's a neat one that, uh, you know, probably not ever going to get over five or six feet tall, um, but they're, they're every color you can imagine. Uh, uh, there's one called Royalty, if you're looking for another real good purple one. Uh, one of my favorites, if you want one that's going to be uh, that 8 to 10 foot range, there's one called Centennial Spirit. 
and uh, it is again sort of that watermelon red pink color so don't don't feel like you have to buy black diamond unless you just like uh, no, that I don't. plant Mm-mm. okay, okay. <laughs> well look a little well, further um you uh, email email info at dirtdoctor.com and ask Howard Garrett uh, uh, where the best place for crepe myrtles in the Metroplex is. Been too long since info I lived there. At, go to info, info at dirtdoctor.com. Dirtdoctor.com. Oh, oh, well, I got that website. Yeah. Yeah. Info at dirt, dirt doctor. Uh, um, okay. Uh, the the thing is, I was online looking for crepe myrtles and and it said twin. It, uh, said how tall they get in all this mm-hmm. and then it said uh 10 inches is is how tall they they mail them 10 inches and it was going to be 29 dollars no. for a 10 no. inch plant online <laughs> no I, i'm <laughs> I not said, going there so. <laughs> uh, i'm not no. going there spend a little time on the phone and talk to some of the, your good nurseries uh in the metroplex area up there and i'm sure you'll find somebody that's got some uh uh, decent crepe myrtles. Uh, there's actually um, uh, a, a shades of green. They're no relation to us, but there is mm-hmm. one up there just a little ways north of Dallas, and we occasionally get to see what they have because they accidentally deliver stuff to us, uh, getting mixed up in the offices. So, you know, even though, like I said, there's no connection whatsoever between us, but uh, there you've got lots of good nurseries up in that area, and I just like to say your cell phone doesn't cost you anything on long distance, so I'd be calling around and asking but uh whether you choose you know victor royalty or centennial spirit or um any of these uh, you should be able to find one without feeling so restricted in the varieties you can get okay how tall did you say the victor got victor's going to get to about five feet six feet five to six and purple magic was what purple magic probably eight or nine well that's about probably a good good Eight or nine yeah. foot. Yeah, and okay. centennial, uh, ten, centennial spirit is uh, another real good one in that uh, okay. uh, eight to nine. I just, you know, I I don't keep a stack of books in front of me and or an internet screen, um, I, but there are white ones in that same range. I just don't bring one to mind. The the real pretty low one that I do like is called Acoma, A C O M A, but it's going to be more ten to twelve feet. But uh, pick your color, pick your size, and uh, keep in mind there are also miniature crepe myrtles that don't get it over about two feet tall. So what you're Mm -hmm. looking at is pretty much what we refer to as a dwarf uh, because they are smaller and compared to the ones that get uh, 20 to 30 feet tall. Yeah, okay, because I see some of those bashing party pinks when I'm They're just gorgeous (laughs) if they're put in the right place, but boy, they are tall. They are tall, and okay. same thing with dynamite, same thing with uh, red rocket. There are lots of great uh, ones, but right. most of those are minimum 15 feet. Um, we've got one here at the nursery that I'm, I don't know how big it's going to get, but it's a pretty color. It's called Pink Velour, one that we planted in our parking lot. It's been in about three years, and it's about seven feet tall, and uh, uh, you might check it that one if you're looking for a pinkish color one, but it's, it's a nice plant, and uh, I, we'll see how big it gets. It's so far, it stayed pretty well confined on size. And these bloom. Uh, these all bloom from say what? What May or June? Uh, all through summer. All yeah. All the newer varieties start blooming earlier than the old-fashioned ones did. So you can. It's all going to depend on the weather. But I would anticipate blooms from about late May on through about uh, September. Okay, then I am so glad I got in. You've, you've been a wealth of information. Thank you. Always, 
Always Very a pleasure, nice. Carolyn. You're certainly welcome. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let me get the last break of the hour out of the way, and then we'll visit with Liz and James and move right along. I get to talk to you about Medina, another of my favorite subjects. And uh, uh, and like I was explaining to the caller earlier, don't worry about the fact that the uh, the numbers on the Medina bag are lower on than some of the box store fertilizers. You get more out of it because your plants basically get 100% of the nutrient in products that Medina produces because they understand cation and cation exchange capacity and what all that means. Medina makes so many good products. Liquid fertilizers, dry fertilizers, products that uh, improve the texture and tilth of the soil, products that increase microbial life. They just do it right. And their products are natural. Some of them are certified organic, but uh, uh, again, it's an expensive process. And I certainly don't blame Stuart for not wanting to go through it on everything. Plus, on some of their products, he tells me we use a synthetically identical uh, cation product because it's so much cheaper than natural urea, for instance. So these folks know products, and uh, I just totally trust. If it says Medina Ag on the bag or on the bottle, I'm not worried about what's inside because those folks are as concerned about maintaining soil health as I am. Medina also makes great products like their orange oil. <laughs> I could tell you stories about a restaurateur that I, uh, you know, got started using orange oil for uh, insect control and cleaning among other, other things. But Medina just has has so many quality products. When you're visiting a good nursery or garden center that carries natural and organic products, be sure to look for the name Medina. All right, back to gardening on a nice Sunday morning out there. Uh, looks like Liz is next in line. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm off to a good start. Hope you are as well. Well, um, I am. Well, I'm about good. to go to sleep. I work nights, but I enjoy <laughs> listening to your show before I go to bed. Well, anyway, Other people uh, tell me it puts them to sleep, too, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never fallen asleep. I usually go to sleep I'm, when you're off. I'm, anyway. I'm, I'm so teasing. It, How can I help today? Okay. When a tree in, in front of my place is shedding its bark, mm-hmm. it's falling all over my car in the parking lot. My brother says it's a Siberian elm. Is it dying? No. No, it's... I don't know. Uh, it's more likely... Uh, could be lace bark elm, um, but they, it's, it's called exfoliation, and, uh, there are a number of trees that do it totally naturally. Sycamore is probably the most prevalent one that does. Now, some of the elms, uh, uh took our, our February freeze, uh, not well at all, because not all the elms are really, really hardy, but does, does the foliage look good on the tree? Did it come out fine this spring? And, yeah, uh, the foliage look- looks good. Yeah. Then I, I would tell you it's almost certainly totally normal because all trees ultimately shed their bark, but some of them just said it shed it almost constantly. And, uh, that certainly includes things like crepe myrtles, like sycamores, and some of the elms. So, uh, um, oh, I, I, I don't think I would have any concern at all. Now, it looked carefully seen to it be. shed this much. I'm sorry, go ahead. Are, are you in town or are you out in the country? Oh, in town. Okay, so you probably don't have porcupines. Porcupines, 
um, are throughout the hill country. Everybody thinks, oh, we don't have porcupines. Yeah, we've got lots of them. They're just nocturnal, so most people don't see them. And they will literally shred the bark off of many trees, which is not a good thing. And occasionally, probably due to some sort of nutrient deficiency, squirrels will do the same. But uh, if the tree looks vigorous and healthy, if you're not seeing big splits up and down the trunk of the tree, I doubt that it's anything to be concerned about. Oh, great. Well, that's good to know. Well, I'm glad. Keep keep in mind that with our, uh, you know, highly unusual, super cold February, uh, a lot of trees, um, they they simply had some changes, which they've overcome. But this this is causing a number of trees to shed some of their older bark a little bit faster. So... Uh, weather may be the cause of it, but uh, losing a fair amount of bark is perfectly normal. And like I say, if there, if you don't see big splits down into the woody part of the tree, this island of the tree, I would not be one bit concerned. I would always check the base of the tree to be sure that root flare is exposed and just you know all the normal things that you would do for a healthy tree. But uh, bark shedding alone doesn't, doesn't ring any alarm bells or raise any red flags for me. Well, I'm so glad. Well, you have a good day, and I'm going to sleep in a few minutes. <laughs> you rest well, Liz, and thank you for what you do in uh, in, your, in your profession. So, okay, uh, call thank me. you. You're thank certainly you very welcome. Much. This is my Bye-bye. pleasure. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But don't call right this minute because every one of those lines is taken. And uh, let's see, we're going to talk to James and Wes and Linda and Cosette in that order. And James is up first. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Got a couple morning, of sir. Questions. First, good morning. The first one is on a loquat. Yes, sir. My uh, wife bought one in a three-gallon container, and it has, I guess you would say, three trunks coming up, mm-hmm. and they're all about half an inch in diameter. Okay. Uh, is it best to grow a loquat as a single tree or as a bush? What's your opinion? No, it's it's much better to grow it as a multiple uh, multiple trunk tree. Uh, the leaves are large, as you know. The foliage is relatively heavy. If you try to make a single trunk tree out of it, and we get one of our typical Texas thunderstorms, it's going to snap the top right out of it. Let it grow up as a big bush. Now, as it grows, if you want to thin the lower foliage out so that you you know can see through it, so that it's not quite as dense, that's not going to hurt anything. But uh, I'd say three to five trunks is about right. You're off to a good start. Just remember the loquats do like quite a bit of moisture. They will grow in anything from bright shade to full sun. I guess uh, the only two drawbacks to them, uh, some people don't like the fact that they produce that yellow fruit um, in the uh, spring. If we have a mild winter, they bloom in the fall, they make fruit in the spring. And they did get some freeze damage this year, but this is the first time in 30 years that that's happened. So uh, especially if you're looking for a big screening plant, uh, you're going to find it hard to do better than loquat today. Well, I like the taste of the loquats, so that's not a problem. <laughs> you know, it's they, they are quite tasty, and, and I don't know how to tell you. I don't know any way to find out until they get big enough to have fruit, but I've I've eaten loquat uh, fruit that has a giant seed in the middle of it, so it's really one great big seed and a very narrow area of flesh on top of it, and I've got other loquats that are 80% flesh and 20% seed, and so um, I'd 
again, I don't know how to tell you to choose, but if you, uh, they grow so quickly, you can actually grow them from seed if you can't find a good one in the nursery. And in that case, I'd look for one of those ones that has the, the high flesh. But, uh, uh, I guess at this point, you're just gonna kind of have to plant and take your chances and, and hope that it's a really, really fleshy one if it's, uh, if you really do enjoy the flavor of them. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, second question: Is there such thing as a blue crepe myrtle? No. <laughs> if you see a blue crepe myrtle, it's been painted. Um, that's <laughs> the the blues are they're in they're in a group of pigments that break down very quickly in the sunlight, and there are only a handful of flowers that are able to, or a handful of plants that are able to produce a stable blue pigment in the flower and crepe myrtles aren't one of them at this point now in this age of uh genetic manipulation which i am not a big believer in um i I won't say that it's out of the question that one day somebody won't develop one but it's not out there now all right my my goal what i'd like to really have is uh, red white and blue crepe myrtle I think that really looked patriotic. <laughs> well, there there are some uh, there are some Altheas that really pr- come close to blue in color. So uh, maybe you need uh, you know a red crepe myrtle, a white Mexican olive, and a uh, blue Althea growing very close together. That'd be a nice combination. But afraid you're going to wait a while on the blue crepe myrtle. But uh, um, there are other things you could do. You know, the flag's not. Uh, uh, uniform in color. You could plant red and white crepe myrtles and plant a big bed of uh, dark blue salvia underneath it or something. You can't create a red, white, and blue tree, but you should can sure create a red, white, blue uh, uh, focal point in your yard. All right. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call, James. Bye. Appreciate it. Goodbye. Wes is up next. Good morning, Wes. Good morning. Thank you for having my call. Listen, I've got a question, uh, two questions, actually. A while back, you and uh, Howard Garrett were talking about comfrey, making a salve out of it and putting it on those pre-cancerous lesions. Can you tell me how to make that salve? Well, I will tell you what I use most comfrey for, and uh, okay. I just squeeze the juice out of the, you know, out of the leaf uh, or out of the the petiole, the leaf stem, and don't worry about trying to combine it with anything else. I have to okay. admit that what I use it mostly for. You know, it's things like scorpion stings or fire ant stings or wasp stings. I've not yet, knock on wood, had a brown recluse bite, but it does better on those and anything the docs have. Now, I will tell you that uh, my friend Dr. Kirby uses it somewhat in his clinic, and he compounds it with lanolin. And if you want to make a cream out of it, then I would look for lanolin, which you can probably find at the drugstore or something like that, and uh, just mix the, the lanolin and uh, and uh, your, your comfrey juice together, and you could make your own salve. But now, if you really want a salve, uh, what I would do is go over to Rhonda's Nature's Way because she's got a professionally produced one. I think they call it uh, trauma cream or comfrey trauma cream or something like that. And those folks have already done it for you. It's not expensive and it's stabilized and in a tube. Uh, I've got a tube of that sitting up in my medicine cabinet just in case I can't get to my comfrey plant periodically. So that's a lot more information than you ask for. <laughs> that's, 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 that's sort of comfrey 101. 
Yeah. yeah the, that was uh, my second question was uh, the herbalist. I could, never could remember her name. It was Rhonda's yeah. I'm in. I'm not in San Antonio, so does okay. she sell by? I can get a sub by on the internet. I'll bet you should be able to do that. Uh, call the Northside. Yeah, call the Northside store. It's going to be the address is probably going to be on Callahan Road. Um, it's either Callahan or I ten. Uh, the Southside store. Um, I'm sure they could probably do it, but Rhonda's usually at the Northside store, uh, and so you could talk to her, and I'm almost certain she could find a way to get it to you. I appreciate it very much. That's what I wanted to know. Thank you, Bob. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the call, Wes. Uh, let's see here. How are we doing on time? Yeah, we can take another call before we uh, before we have to take a break. Linda will be up next. Good morning, Linda. Good morning, Bob. Um, Good morning. I have a quick question for you. I'm looking for a sage bush but are there any dwarf sizes available like maybe three feet tall now when you say sage you're talking about the so-called purple sage gray leaf and uh, usually orchid lavender flowers yes okay yeah it's it's interesting because sage you know there are a hundred different things out there called sage and most of them are salvias that that one is the one that is not a salvia it's something called leucophyllum there's not a miniature form there are what they call some compact forms uh if you're looking for one that's going to grow maybe four feet uh you could probably choose uh, there's one called desperado uh that's going to stay compact there's another one that's simply called compact texas sage that they didn't try to make up a you know a little bit more colorful name for it but uh mm-hmm. in answer to your question yes there are more than one compact variety out there, the one you want to stay away from is the old-fashioned native one you see across South Texas because it wants to get 12 feet tall. But uh, uh, how how tall are you hoping for? Oh, like three, four feet would be good. Okay, I yeah, look for desperado a window, and I don't want it to get too tall. Sure, look for look for either compact Texas sage, which is going to have sort of a you know that beautiful common orchid lavender flower, or look for desperado that has the uh, real dark lavender flower. And you know, every two three years, you might need to go through and thin back some of the taller branches, but those are going to be compact enough. I think they'll certainly please you. Do you happen to have the desperado at your nursery? We don't today. It's one we get regularly, but I tell you this year, shrubs and trees are in really, really difficult to find. Uh, get lots of annuals and perennials because they grow more quickly, but everybody in the world's out there looking for it. Most of the suppliers are already sold out on their 2021 crops and are not promising a whole lot for 2022. I say that, and now we be, may be able to find some next week, but I don't <laughs> think there are any of them back there today. But uh, I'll be looking for them this week, and you can call midweek and find out if we've had any success in locating them. Okay, great. Thanks so much. You're sure welcome. Is this this is a full sun area? This is like a west side or a south side yeah, of your home? It is home? the west. Yes, the west side. Because okay. it's going to take that much sun to really do well. But it sounds like hey, we got a good place for a good plant. Very good, yes. Linda. Okay. Thank you for the call. Thanks. My pleasure. Bye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Cosette and Kat and Arthur, and Cosette is up first. Good morning. Hi again, Bob. <laughs> Good morning again. Twice in one weekend. I, I feel honored. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I feel honored that you're taking my calls. 
so the question I had left over from yesterday was um, after the freeze, like you've been mentioning, it's been really difficult to get any citrus, and I had lost right. a Myers lemon. And we lost a satsuma. I, I don't know what kind it was. It was my mother's. Um, so the only kind I was able to find was an Arctic satsuma. Mm-hmm. Okay. And although I know we shouldn't really be reading on the Internet because we get false information as far as gardening goes, um, I had read on several sites that Arctic uh, satsumas are actually grafted with other Arctic satsumas. Is that correct? And if so, does that mean if there are any sprouts on the end, I don't need to cut them off at the bottom? I I would be very surprised if that's accurate. I can't tell you for sure. I can see where they may have been hybridized with, uh, I think it's probably Arctic Frost is, is the variety they're talking about. And they may have, you know, hybridized them with other plants trying to get a real good strain. But I can't imagine what the reason for... Um, you know, if they are indeed grafted, then what I guess they're probably trying to do is grow, you know, seedling Arctic plants and then graft a known strain of that onto it. I, that seems a little, um, I, I, it's not what I would do. I'll put it that way, but, uh, it's the, it, it, you know, just when you're when you're growing anything from seed, you're getting the ultimate genetic variety. If you you know cross pollinated two of these trees and you got ten thousand seed out of it, no two trees would have the same genetic makeup. And uh, you know, some of them are going to have good fruit on them. Some of them are going to have uh, great fruit out of them. Some of them are going to have mediocre fruit on them. So, long answer to a short question. Um, there. It, it would be better than having a rootstock like the sour orange or uh, uh, something like even the flying dragon that they use for compacting a plant. We know those are going to produce really poor fruit. Uh, the chances that you know your seedling Arctic frost would produce a good fruit are certainly higher. But I'm not sure. I wouldn't. I just you know again. I I question you know, what the reasoning is, because the reason, you know, most citrus is grafted is for the vigor of the rootstock. And if they've got a very vigorous uh, Arctic frost, I'm not sure why they would want to graft it onto anything else. I'm just not sure what the reasoning is behind that. Now, I wouldn't say that all the information on the Internet is bad, but I'd just say most of it's not accurate for here. What you read out there is probably right for somewhere in the world, but most of it's not right for South Texas, so you're very, very wise to question that. But uh, I'm not familiar with any grower in Texas that is uh, grafting uh, Arctic onto Arctic, and it is totally illegal for any citrus grower to ship uh, their, their plants into Texas. Uh, uh, it's just the ag regulations. If they find it in the post office or what, they'll take it, destroy it, and go after the company shipping it in because they've put a ban on all citrus from outside of Texas trying to, you know, limit the spread of this greening disease. So, um, again, I'm not even sure that the company you're looking at on the Internet could legally ship it to you. So wouldn't get my hopes up too high. Good news is that some of our suppliers are telling us that there will be citrus available uh, probably sometime in August. So keep checking with uh, your favorite nurseries and uh 
hopefully um, they don't always give us a lot of notice as to when they're going to ship, but uh, they're telling us that there will be a crop ready uh, late summer or early fall. So there's going to be some citrus out there for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bob. And, oh, well, it's, and also, thank you for accusing me of being wise. I don't get that one often. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, then other people are just don't know you very well, and I don't know that I've ever met you, but from the questions you ask, I think you're pretty wise. So uh, you get out and have a good uh, Sunday. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yes. All right. Uh, next up is going to be Kat. Uh, good morning, Kat. Hi, uh, Dr. Hi Bob. There. How are you today? I'm just having a good morning because I'm talking to a bunch of great gardeners out there. Oh, you're you're you're, you're right. You are uh, not me, but others. Yes. <laughs> well, um, I got my I two black a... labs at my feet to answer the questions that are too hard for me. They can generally come <laughs> up with an answer. <laughs> I've got an old a loquat tree in the front of my house, and mm-hmm. it looks like it. The bark is just peeling off of it. Right. Um, is that normal? I mean, I've got like ants running a lot up and down it too. Is that is it normal for it to lose the bark like this? It's normal for it to lose a little bit of the bark. Um, most of the loquats that I'm seeing that are losing excessive amounts of bark, it is freeze damage, and okay. the ones that have deep cracks in the wood underneath. I, it's going to be a long time before those really make a nice plant again, and I'm seeing a bunch of them that are doing what, unfortunately, we predicted. They're just folding up and dying at this point because the damage was bad enough that they could handle the nice mild weather we had early in the summer, but they're not handling, you know, uh, even though we're, we're much cooler than typical for July, um, they're very, very stressed. Now, loquats that I'm seeing, virtually all of them are putting on nice, strong growth from the base. They're going to grow up to make nice shrubs once again. They're going to grow much faster than they did the first time around. But the ones that I'm looking at with a lot of peeling, splitting stems and peeling bark, I think the top of those loquats is probably going to die out before it's all said and done. And uh, at this point, uh, you just kind of have to judge by what the top looks like. But if it were mine, I probably would go ahead and cut it back and let the new growth from the base take over. Well, the, like there's part of the um, – some of the limbs look completely dead and some of the limbs mm-hmm. look healthy. Yeah. So could I trim off the um, dead – Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Take take the dead ones out. But at this point, there's no guarantee that even the ones that look healthy now are going to be healthy if it turns out to be a hot August, uh, if the weather gets really stressful. So just, uh, you know, don't don't hang all your hopes on the fact that they look pretty good now because some of them are still starting to go south. But like I say, in most cases, uh, loquats are going to regrow very quickly from the base, much like bay laurel, much like uh, a lot of other trees that froze practically to the ground did. How long do these trees live? Somebody told me about 30, 35 years. Is that correct? That's probably accurate. Um, I think it could be much longer than that if people take okay. care of them. But the okay. one thing about a loquat is that uh, they like moisture. It doesn't have to be super wet. But the thing that does in most loquats is when we get into a droughty condition, and especially the older plants aren't quite as strong, uh, if they don't get supplemental water, 
then they're not going to do well. So it's it's not that they're necessarily dying of old age, but it's just they've uh, they've gotten to the point where they're a little bit more dependent on care from us. Uh, my favorite loquat story is uh, aunt and uncle lived in Dallas for many years, uh, built a new home, Pyramid Home, Beam Home, uh, planted a loquat on the front corner. That loquat grew faster and bigger than any loquat I had ever seen in my life. And 20 years later, um, they had a plumber out down underneath the house looking for a problem. And uh, he came up, told my aunt, said, Lady, did you know they never hooked up the shower to your your drain system? And so for 20 years, that shower had been dumping immense (laughs) amount of water there. He fixed it. He tied it into the sanitary sewer. And the loquat died back by half the next year. So oh, my goodness. <laughs> they, they love lots of moisture, and if you provide them with supplemental moisture, um, I can see them living 50 years or longer uh, for you. But um, if we get into a droughty time and you don't water them, they're going to decline and may even die just from the drought when some other shrubs around them that are a little more tolerant, like pittosporum or uh, some of those others, they'll do just fine, and your loquat will start dying back simply because it requires a little bit more moisture than most of the landscape shrubs we use. Okay. Okay. Sounds. I, I'll go up there and water it a little bit right now. Okay, <laughs> well, it probably doesn't need it right now. If you're in this area, we we got lots of good soaking rains over the past three or four weeks. But my general rule for a loquat, if we don't get, you know, a good rain probably every three weeks, then it probably is going to like some supplemental moisture. Oh, okay. Okay. Can I ask you one more quick question? Of course. Of course. What's the What's the best way to kill out the little hackberry? Um, uh, I don't know stems or whatever. I've got a I've got a crepe myrtle and I've got a hack like little hackberry trying to pop up. Uh, um, you're just gonna have to move somewhere else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hackberries are the devil to try to get rid of uh how how close is this hackberry to your crepe myrtle oh it's right in the, it's right there i mean it's right okay. in with uh, the the little stems are are uh uh, uh, re, uh sprouting up and i mean i yeah. cut them back and then they sprout up and then i cut them back and then they sprout up it's right in the middle of my crepe myrtle yeah. my, this crepe myrtle never has done well i mean it's uh-huh well, do it's this. Never done well. Yeah, probably that's not because of the uh, hackberry. Probably that's because it's buried too deeply. It's probably because the root flare is six or eight inches down in the ground, and so pull the soil back from the uh, edge from the base of the crepe myrtle until you see not little fibrous roots, but until you see those big roots flaring out. You do that, and your crepe myrtle will start looking better the next day. And when you do that, you're probably going to be able to cut that hackberry back a whole lot further because it's it's much more shallow-rooted. Um, I mean, it's growing at the, as far as that tree is concerned, it's growing at the right level. But I'm going to say 99% of the crepe myrtles get planted, get planted anywhere from 6 inches to 2 feet too deep in the ground. And that's the most common reason that crepe myrtles don't thrive so long as they're getting good sun and other care. So start by exposing, exposing the root flare on your crepe myrtle, then cut that hackberry as, back as low as you possibly can. It's going to be set back a good deal just from your getting the soil that needs to be be pulled away from the trunk of the crepe myrtle. Um, there, there's nothing safe that you can put on that will kill it without uh, harming the roots of your crepe myrtle. The reason I asked how far away it was is I've known people to cut them back and then take an old soup can or 
you know, camp fruit can or something like that and just put that down over the upper six inches of the trunk and the tree tries and tries and tries to spread out. It can't get out of that and uh, and ends up dying. But where it's just, you know, intertwined with crepe myrtle, that's not going to work. But I'm more concerned about getting that crepe myrtle healthy than I am about totally eliminating the hackberry. And from what you're telling me, I can almost bury that is tell you promise you that it's buried too deeply so start with exposing the root flare and then we'll talk about where to go from there okay thank you thank you thank you as always you've just been just my fountain of information i've needed well i I can't i can't always give you the answer you want to hear but i'll always do my best to tell you the truth on that cat so let me know how it does and uh get back with me and i want to know how you come out on it oh i will thank you thanks again you're certainly welcome. Thank you. Okay. All right, let's uh, get a break out of the way here. Or Arthur's going to be up first after the break, by the way. And uh, talking about things that you can count on that you never have to worry about, I can talk to you about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And, uh, you know, I had never really looked. I tell you that, uh, you know, you're going to save money on your insurance. But uh, I went back and checked my policy for other reasons this week. And uh, I found that I got a full 2% discount off of my insurance premium simply because I had a good metal roof from Southwest Metal Roofing Systems on my home. And uh, it's just there's so many reasons to choose Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. They simply, in my opinion, put on the best roof in the industry, a true lifetime quality roof. Uh, We've got uh, one of the roofs on Shades of Green. My business partner has one on her home. I've had one on my home for close, close to 20 years. We've never had to make a service call except for the one time that a truck backed into the roof here at the nursery. We've been through big hail. We've been through high winds. Southwest Metal Roofing Roofing Systems roofs are simply made of the best metal on the market, and they are installed at far higher standards than are legally required. They simply, in my opinion, do the best job in the industry and i can tell you an awful lot of people that would totally agree with me on that plus they're reasonably priced again i tell the story about our groundwater district office up in kendall county i said i want a southwest metal roofing systems roof on our new building uh architect and builder both said oh that'd be way too expensive and i said no no you give them a call and find out they came back and said wow their prices are much more reasonable than we expected and we have one of their roofs on our groundwater district office love southwest metal roofing systems you will too Phone number is 210-822-6868. It's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Well, I guess this must be the guys segment because we're going to talk to Arthur and Mike and Leonard and Omar. And Arthur is up first. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning. I could use up a whole segment, I think, but... The first question I have is, what do I do with a palm tree stump? It will rot away fairly quickly. If you want to make it rot faster, uh, you can take and, and do this carefully because it's very, very fibrous. And uh, use uh, I would not use a spade bit on your drill. I'd use a regular drill bit because uh, it's not going to jerk nearly as badly. But drill what you can in holes down in the middle of it as, as deeply as possible. And get some uh, potassium nitrate. I've got a jar of it sitting on my desk somebody brought me, I'm sure, from... Uh, uh, analytics, uh, scientific, what is it? Uh, analytical scientific out on Bandera Road. Pour that down in there and it will make that stump rot five times as fast as it normally would. 
about probably two months after you put it in there, uh, you can put a couple of charcoal briquettes on top and light it, and it will smolder all the way down to the soil and be gone. Uh, I poured diesel on it yesterday and lit it, and it promptly went out. Yeah. Now, what what happens, uh, um, and if it's dead enough, you know, you can light it uh, that way, but the uh, uh, potassium nitrate, saltpeter, um, actually converts, the, the woody material is called cellulose, and it converts it into something we call nitrocellulose. Now, it's not explosive or anything. Highly refined nitrocellulose, uh, yeah, highly refined nitrocellulose is what they use for powder and shotgun shells. So, uh, it becomes much more uh, flammable. Uh, it's just, you know, um, I, I guess if, you, if you're out in the country where you can actually light something, uh, then I'd do your potassium nitrate first and then, again, wait a couple of months for it to work. Then you follow it up with your diesel and it's going to burn down to the ground with no problem at all. In the city where the fire department takes a dim view of doing such things, uh, doing the old charcoal briquette trick, it just kind of smolders its way down to the ground and doesn't create any hazard at all. But you've, you've got to get that. You've got to go from having cellulose, which is going to have to dry for a year before it'll burn very well. You've got to get that into the nitrocellulose form, where it is uh, number one. It's much more spongy if you <clears throat> excuse me if you want to chop it out, but. <laughs> But most people uh, will will do this first. You can actually buy uh, the uh, saltpeter in, in a product they call Stump Remover, and it's probably just not quite as concentrated as the stuff you get from Analytical Scientific. Uh, but that's exactly what they tell you to do: is uh, you know, drill it, put it in, give it a little while on a you know on a live oak or something really hard wood. You're going to have to give it six months or longer. But something soft like a pine tree or a palm tree, it's going to happen a whole lot faster. So I'm down at my place in Kennedy. So do you think I could chop it out with the bucket on my tractor? Um, you can. Um, the the palm has a um, – it has a, the, the roots are big. I mean, they're not woody like they would be on an oak or elm. The, uh, the roots on your palm are going to be about the size of a big soda straw. And uh, you can very definitely um, – uh, if you had a backhoe, you'd get it out of there in five minutes. Um, you can, uh, depending on <laughs> on how big your tractor is, you can most definitely, uh, uh, you can either, you know, push it out or you can, uh, I don't really like using chains, but you could use a good toe strap or something like that, wrap it well around the base, and then uh, if you got a big tractor, you just use a bucket to pull it up out of the ground. Yeah, I pushed it with my tractor yesterday, and it didn't budge. Well, you need a bigger tractor. <laughs> but every every rancher I know wants a bigger tractor, but most of us can't afford them. Uh, probably you're going to be. <laughs> Amen to that. I, I've never been in, in, well, in our area, air conditioned. My friends up in Wyoming, they're real glad that they have that heated cab because uh, uh, my friend up there has to go down uh, every morning in the winter and break the ice on the Green River so his cows can go drink. And uh, so a warm cab is nice in certain climates as well. But no, I think I think the potassium nitrate trick on your, uh, on your palm tree stump is going to be the best answer for you, sir. Okay, next question. I have two pecan trees. I have one in the front of my house, and about 75 yards away, I have one in the back of my house. The Mm -hmm. one in the front yard is 
the leaves are yellow. Okay. I there are a lot of things that can cause that. Pecan trees like zinc, and um, I'm not into you know foliar spraying because you end up burning things. But um, you might look for a fertilizer that's got plenty of zinc in it. I would also check the base of that tree and be sure that root flare is exposed. Uh, you'll get yellowing in a pecan if you've got soil piled up above the root flare. So that's the first thing I would do is check the root flare and expose it if it's buried. Um, but uh, overall yellowing is always a... a sign of either too little nitrogen too little iron or too little zinc in the case of a pecan it may be a zinc deficiency and you can certainly correct that with fertilizing the first thing to check is just be sure the root flare is exposed okay the one in the back of the house has got the little pecans my dad used to call them native pecans and that's what they are Okay, so they're too small and hard to break open so that just sounds like I got a whole bunch of pecan tree barbecue wood well you know it it all depends um you know years ago and i it may still be true today but the the people that crack pecans they pay more money for those little natives than they did for the others because the oil content is so much higher than it is in the so-called paper shell pecans that came out i don't know before my time maybe 60 years ago but um yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, many squirrels have uh, made a very good uh, life out of eating those native ones, but we do much better with the thinner skin ones. But um, I, the, the, the old native trees are certainly the hardiest, and you, you don't happen to know what variety the one in your front yard is, do you? No, everything I got I inherited from the people I bought the place okay. from. Yeah, it it may just be... It's been abused for over 10 years, so there's lots and lots of work. Yeah, the uh, there are some varieties, Wichita, some of the newer varieties don't do nearly as well. Some of them like Mohawk and Sioux and Cheyenne and Choctaw, those are as good a growers as the natives are, but it could be that this tree just doesn't have genetics that uh, really are adaptable to uh, your part of the world. But I'd start with exposing the root flare. I'd follow it up with a really good balanced fertilizer, maybe talk to Stuart Frankie over at Medina and see if he's got anything he would recommend adding to it and if it doesn't come out greener next spring then uh, uh, it, it may just be that the tree's not as suitable for this area as your old native is i would never ever you know cut down that native what i mean if you want to you can actually go back in and graft paper shell varieties onto existing trees uh if you're really really interested in making you know good tender paper shell pecans but uh uh, it may just be that your front yard tree just is not really well adapted to this area we're just going to have to take a little time and do a couple of things to find that out okay my last question my wife got a five and a half foot tall uh myers lemon for mother's day excellent okay it's in a three gallon bucket Uh hot and she's definitely thinks we need to transplant it already well if it's five feet tall in a three gallon pot i would totally agree with her um you want to keep it in a pot or do you want to put it in the ground uh we're going to leave it in a pot i want to eventually put it in a big a big enough pot and set it on a pallet 
if so it's, I can if pick it's, it up with the forks and move it into the barn during the wintertime. <laughs> All right, sir. Uh, get a good pallet to do that with because pallets tend to rot pretty quickly. But anyway, uh, if it's five feet tall, I would probably go up to a seven-gallon pot. And when you take it out of the pot that it's in, I want you to look real carefully at the root system. If you see roots that seem to be circling around, like they got to the edge of the pot and then just started circling round and round and round, take your pruning shears and snip those roots because we don't want them ultimately forming a noose around the trunk of the tree. But, uh, yeah, Correct. if that tree's five feet tall, it's ready for a seven-gallon pot for sure. Okay. Thank you for your time. Always a pleasure, Arthur. Good questions. Thank you, sir. Bye. Goodbye. All right, uh, next up is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob, and what a beautiful day the Lord has given us. Yes, he has, or she has, depending on your beliefs. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have that told to me all the time. Uh, Bob, a few, a few callers back wanted a red, white, and blue landscape, <clears throat> and I was one. Would a Rose of Sharon uh, produce a little bit of a blue to it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mentioned. Uh, the Rose of Sharon and Althea are the same plant, and um, that that would be good. It's not going to be as deep a blue, and it's not going to be as many flowers as something like, uh, you know, dark blue salvia or something. It's going to freeze back in the winter. But, yeah, he was looking for three crepe myrtles he could plant together, and there's just not a blue crepe myrtle at this point. But you and I are thinking the same way, that, that blue Althea or Rose of Sharon. It's not deep, deep blue. It's not the color of old glory, but it, uh, you know, it, it, at least it is blue. It does give a little bit of a blue tint. Uh, yeah. Uh, the man that was talking about a palm tree removing it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> of course, it sounds like he just has a stump. Yeah. But yeah. I had that was about 20 feet or more tall, and I dug around it with just a grubbing hole and uh couple of neighbors and I put a rope on it and pulled it over and there's a bunch of roots. Yes, there are. And you can do that where you've got a trunk sticking up. That's why if you ever, you know, want somebody clearing a road or something like that uh, and you want somebody to come in with a piece of equipment and get those stumps out, don't ever cut them off at ground level. Leave them three or four feet sticking up so they can get the leverage against it. That's his mistake is that all he had was a stump. Yeah. Well, Bob, I, uh, I have one other uh, thing to ask you, and I've been negligent and I've been bad about being able to get out and do gardening, <clears throat> but I talked to you before about my uh, Mexican sweet olive, the Anacahuita. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, it died back, <clears throat> and I have uh, I had uh, little shooters coming off the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not been able to get to it, but now those little shoots are about four feet tall, and it's like Good. a big bush. Yeah, yeah. I guess I could just leave it be a bush. Uh, you can uh, you can let it be a bush, or you can let it be a multi-trunk tree. I don't think I make a single trunk tree out of it, but it's always going to produce most flowers as a bush. So just trim it up. Uh, like to whatever shape you need it to be. Now, one thing, uh, whether you're talking to me or anybody else, uh, I, I need to be clear with you that there's a big difference between a Mexican olive and a sweet olive. And um, what you have is a Mexican olive, but you may confuse somebody if you call that a Mexican sweet olive because a sweet olive is actually genus osmanthus. It's a totally different plant, and I may have misinformed you in the past thinking you had the wrong 
you you had the the osmanthus rather than the true Mexican olive. But what you're describing, I'm not surprised. Every Mexican olive in San Antonio froze. I'm glad yours is coming back. But uh, it's it's your choice. Let it come up, make a big bush, or thin it out a little bit and let it make a multi-trunk tree. In any event, you've got one of the prettiest summer flowering plants you'll ever have in this area. Yes, sir. There are uh, there is a uh, a children's uh, museum over on Broadway, kind of across from Lions Field. Right. Are you familiar? Right. Yeah. They have several of these. Uh, I thought they were all the same uh, olive trees, Mexican olive. I've been told it was called a, a nacahuita, and they're about the the fruit's about the size of your thumb, a little yeah. bit smaller. Yeah. That's that's just a common name uh, botanically. The name is Cordia, K-O-R, I believe it's K K O R D I A. If you want to look it up, uh, there is a tree called an anaqua. They also call a sandpaper tree. And I guess somebody decided that uh, the Mexican olive looked like a uh, like a small anaqua tree, so they started calling it anaquita. But that's what you get into with uh, common names. <laughs> well, Those of I us just, in the I trade just, have to know what the scientific name is, so we get what we think we're getting when we order. Well, they're awfully good to eat. And uh, mm-hmm. what is it they have over there at at that uh, uh, children's museum? I know they have some Mexican olives. I've never seen sweet olive over there. Sweet olive is a, a shrub with, uh, it has tiny white flowers, most fragrant flowers in the world, uh, which is where the name comes from, Osmanthus fragrance. But uh, you would never mistake one for the other. They are totally different plants. And area you're talking about, I used to go to meetings down at uh, Lions Field when uh, the orchid judges met down there. So I know what you're talking about with the Mexican olives, and those are, um, are are the what we call Mexican olive cordia? Um, I just I don't bring the species name to mind at this point, but uh, those are the Mexican olives. Cordia well, boisseriana, boisseriana, I think is what it is. Do you carry those down there at Shades of Green? They're hard to find this year because uh, because so many of them froze. Uh, we've got three or four of them back there. They're pretty good sized uh, trees. Uh, but uh, they are very hard to find. We have a few. They're just there are not many of them out there. Probably won't be until next spring when people get regrown on them. I'd like to see the two different ones together. I, yeah. I just don't don't Stop what they are, but I'd like to. Okay, Stop I will. Time. They're in two different parts of the nursery, and we'll happily point out which is which. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and you have a good rest of the day. You do the same, Mike. Thank you. Okay, let's get a break out of the way here, and then it'll be Leonard and Omar, and on down the list. I get to talk to you about Wild Birds Unlimited. You know how much I enjoy being out of doors, how much I love nature. I can't call myself a big birder. I'm in and out, you know, and I, I can't always keep all the seed out. But let me tell you, my feeders are from Wild Birds Unlimited, and uh, they are simply the best in the business. They have the freshest seed you will ever find at Wild Birds Unlimited. But best of all, they have the knowledge. They uh, they know that, for instance, that birds eat different seed in the winter months than they do in the summer. Grocery store is going to have the same seed year-round, and it's not going to be top quality. Wild Birds Unlimited is going to have different blends for different times of year, and it is always fresh and top quality. Their hummingbird feeders have a built-in moat to stop the ants. Uh, they even have a product that will extend the life of your nectar if you don't have your hummingbirds emptying it every day or two. Wild Birds Unlimited has so much more than bird material, though. They've got wonderful things to help you enjoy the outdoors. Beautiful things. Um, oh, they've got wind chimes. They've got sun catchers. They've got bird baths. They've got... 
they've got a lot of different gift merchandises. Well, you just need to get by and see them. It's a very, very special place. They're open seven days a week to serve you. They're out there in the shopping center at the corner of a Northwest Military in Hebner. They're on the side that sort of faces uh, Northwest Military, if you're wondering where to, where to look for them. It's a small shop packed with just lots and lots of <laughs> good material wonderfully friendly people always happy to answer your questions uh, i love wild birds unlimited i think you will too and if you have anybody on your gift list that loves being out of outdoors just get them a gift certificate they'll love you for it thanks from wild birds unlimited south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, Leonard, let's get started. I've only got about a minute and a half till news, but we'll get started and then hold you through the news and continue. Good morning. Uh, morning there, Bob. Uh, I'm down here in Rockport. Uh, Lucky you. And I've got uh, two um, Mexican oleanders. Yes, sir. And, uh, they froze, and uh, mm-hmm. I was listening to you a while back. You said to give them until July the 4th. Yeah. Well, about uh, June the 1st, that one of them came out. And one in the back, I walked over and said, well, I guess you're going to have to go. You're not coming out. Went out on July the third and had a three inch <laughs> three inch sprout. So you saved his life. I appreciate it. I guess it hurt me and knew it better better shape up or, or get get cut down. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your information. No telling how Certainly. many got pulled up that didn't need to be pulled up. Um, You're right, exactly. All right, thank you, Bob. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Now that you know the uh, trivia going on in the world, let's get back to the important things out there, and that would be gardening, of course. And uh, we start with Omar, and then it'll be Elizabeth and Ray. I don't know if anybody's grabbed line number four yet. If not, you might just get through if you want to dial right now. But most importantly, I get to say good morning, Omar. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Uh, it's just a nice day out there, and uh, it's July, so it's not 110 degrees. I'm happy. <laughs> not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing about being a pessimist, you're never disappointed. <laughs> and yeah, I'm sure we're going to get some, some severely hot weather, but, but it's just, this has not been, I never use the word normal when we talk about Texas weather, but this just hasn't been a typical year, and I'm yeah. kind of hoping it keeps up that way for a while longer. Yeah, me too. We we're gonna we got our rainwater tanks are full as of as of right now. So we're that fantastic. Decent, yeah, decent summer. I talked to Mister Kite here a few weeks ago. A real real interesting yeah. guy. And the uh, older Mister John Kite or his son Mark Kite. Mark Mark Mark. Yeah, Mark's the one that does all the installation. John's the guy that sort of pioneered rainwater catchment uh, in South Texas, and they're both great people. Yeah. Yeah, those are the good videos, YouTube videos on on the on the on the father. But uh, anyway, no, my question was, I've got a, <clears throat> you know, our tomatoes are are not doing well at all because of the rain, mm-hmm. and they're still uh, still, you know, when they're very small, they're busting open. I guess it's, it's still there's too much moisture in in the ground. But uh, I have a bug problem, and I don't know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. It's got reddish antennas. Mm-hmm. And its abdomen and thorax area are much like a kissing bug, and its rear legs will go up at a forty-five, and kind of like a grasshopper legs will go up at a forty-five mm-hmm. and come back down, and they they cluster around my my tomatillos, and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I just I don't know I don't know if they're giving my tomatoes a virus because I've got some really odd 
odd colored stuff going on right now but just wondering what that bug is and what uh what can i spray it's it's one of the many forms of uh stink bug um and uh the it it has its larval state is going to be uh or it's juvenile state i'm not sure which would be the appropriate term anyway they look like uh, giant red aphids they're real or things that are red with black legs and uh those are real easy to kill the adults take a little bit longer unless you're using the old thumb and forefinger but um the product that i found best and i just i keep a little spray bottle of it out along by my tomatoes it's called spinosad soap uh totally harmless to people and pets i'd rinse your tomatoes but you know it's it's safe enough that we we give a different form of it actually as an oral medication to dogs for flea control is how safe your spinosad is but uh spinosad soap is the best thing that i have found to kill those blasted things but if you can if you can catch them in that juvenile state they kind of run around like they're in a pack and uh one or two good sprays you'll kill 25 of them at a time and it's it's good to get them before you get the adults but uh they're not it's not that they're transferring a virus to your uh tomatoes the way some of your thrips and things can but they have a very piercing mouth part and they'll stick it in there and get a little juice and they just go from tomato tomato uh and everywhere they've been they live a little yellowish dot on there makes a little hard spot inside the tomato and when it's real rainy sometimes it just starts discoloring and rotting from that point on i i hate those blasted things but uh i and you know if you're going to grow tomatoes in south texas you're probably going to see some of them but let me tell you spinosad soap is the best thing i've found to use on them that's usually what i use but i don't know what's going on here we i haven't been able to find it you know curry's usually has it but they they Mm -hmm. haven't for a while so i got a another uh something else called it's safer brand insect killing soap it's a potassium salt but i don't know right and and safer soap's been around for 50 years but the combination of the spinosad and the safer soap together uh if you can't find if you can't find it as uh spinosad soap uh you can get some spinosad probably under the name of captain jack's dead bug um, yeah, and yeah. you can you can blend it yourself. Uh, it's just I don't know. It's easier and cheaper to buy it already as a soap. And you know, it just we are in the craziest world I have ever seen, Omar. The strangest things are happening, and right now um, they're having trouble getting spray tops for the bottles that they put a lot of this stuff in. They can get all of the product <laughs> they need. They can get all the bottles they need. Uh, but I guess you know China's not shipping the sprayers or whatever. Freight rates from uh, Asia to this country, they went from $4,000 a container to $40,000 a container for a lot of suppliers, and 16000 wow. is the cheapest anybody. It, it's just a weird, weird world out there. So there may be plenty of spinosads open. What you might want to do is uh, ask Curry's or wherever you're getting things, ask them if they can get you the concentrate, because spinosad soap yeah, does yeah. come as a concentrate now, and then you can put it in your own sprayer and not have to worry about it. Yeah, that's that's the one I've been, I've been getting, but uh, like I said, I don't know what you know. There's just a shortage of it right now, I guess. So, <laughs> that and everything but, uh, else. That that and common sense. That's what the biggest shortage of is in this country today. <laughs> but don't get me started. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> yes, well, sir. sir. I appreciate it. Y'all have a good day. 
Well, and just just to further your knowledge, um, viruses uh, can be pretty common in tomatoes, but rarely do they affect the fruit. They only affect the foliage, and uh, they're transferred from some native grasses, and the little uh, insect that does the transferring is usually something called a thrips insect. If you ever start seeing any virus issues, we're finding that most of them can be totally controlled with hydrogen peroxide, so don't listen to the guys that tell you to throw every, pull everything up and throw it away. There, there are some answers out there but hopefully we won't have to deal with that but you know i'll be here to answer the questions for you if we ever do so you get out and have a good sunday all right thank you you too my pleasure thank you uh elizabeth is up next good morning elizabeth good morning good morning i have a question about an avocado i had bought an avocado about a year or so ago um early this spring i believe a grasshopper might have got a hold of it and nearly defoliated it um So in the meantime, I've been watering it and fertilizing it. However, I would say only about a third, maybe a fourth of the leaves have grown back. The leaves are just not growing back. What else can I do? Do you have this tree in a pot or is it planted in the ground? It's still in the pot and it's in its original pot. It's still in the same one gallon, I believe. Okay. And how big is it? How tall? Um... Oh, I would say it's maybe um, three. It's, it's about three foot. It's the way they okay. come from the nursery. It's, yeah. I, I actually it, bought it there. Okay. It, uh, it it needs to go into a bigger pot. Um, I okay. would go not to a huge pot, but to a three-gallon container probably. that's You're going from about a six-inch pot to about a nine-inch pot that way. And this is going to help. Uh, do look and be sure you don't find any circling roots. One thing, on, and what are you using for fertilizer? Um, the Medina, the yeah, it has um, to grow. That's gets good. It has to grow plant would be an excellent fertilizer. If you want to add I'm using something, the um the granular fertilizer, oh, and okay. then I'll alternate it with the liquid fertilizer. Yeah, you probably don't need to use the granular uh, in a pot like that. Just use the liquid and use it about every two weeks. Uh, the okay. one thing that you might add, there's a product, the bottle makes it look like, you know, the snake oil salesman got you. It's called Super Thrive, but that stuff mm-hmm. is the most amazing thing I have ever found for helping plants bounce back from stress, whether it was cold, whether it was drought, whether it was uh, insect damage. So I'd maybe mix, you know, like a cap full of Super Thrive in with your next bucket of uh, the Hestero plant that you mix up. And uh, I'd go ahead and get it in about a three-gallon container, and I think you'll see more growth in the next month than you've seen in the past three months. Okay, and I can do that now then, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And just then, be sure, and I know you already know this, just be sure that you, when you move it to the bigger pot, you put soil on the bottom of the pot, set the plant in there so that you only have to add soil around the edge, that you don't have to pile it up any deeper over the trunk when you fill the pot up. Okay, good. And how much sun should it be getting? I'm afraid I don't have it in enough sun. It's in shade by like oh, 30. No. It it wants it wants as much sun as you can give it. If it's been getting shaded from the afternoon sun, it'll need to be accustomed to the bright sun a little gradually. Move it out where it gets sun till 3, then move it out where it gets sun till 4 after a couple of weeks okay. and then move it out where it gets sun all day to get the best growth. Okay, I okay, that makes sense. Um, the second question I have is I have an area in my backyard that um, I have plenty of space to plant some trees, so I want to plant uh-huh. like a little like a little grove of trees. The only okay. existing tree on the property has there's a mesquite 
but it's uh-huh. way down at the bottom of the yard, and that's where I'd like to plant like a little grove of trees. Okay. What kind of trees would go in that area with the mesquite? Well, mesquite, that's a real interesting and a real good question to ask. Uh, mesquites produce something from their roots that keeps other mesquites from growing. Uh, they want the neighborhood all to themselves. But generally speaking, it's called a leliopathy, but generally speaking, it doesn't apply to other trees. So you'll want to plant, well, you want to you you want to choose your trees according to the size you want, and if you're going to put them actually under or real close to the mesquite, you're going to need to plant something that will tolerate a little bit more shade. But, um, golly, there are just so many different things. Uh, if you want flowers, there are some tree-form crepe myrtles you can put back there that would be beautiful and colorful from a distance. Uh, if you're into... Um, cooking and you use a lot of bay you could actually plant bay laurel grows very easily and you can stop paying heb an outrageous price for bay leaves because you'll have a lifetime supply on a relatively small bay tree um if you're looking for you know just you know good dense foliage growth there are a lot of choices if you want a really big shade tree to grow up in a hurry you could plant a mexican sycamore back there um, you get you get lots and lots of different choices, but um, uh, if you want something really dense, uh, depending on where you are, you could probably plant a mountain laurel or two. That's going to tolerate the shade of the mesquite, but it's going to make a beautiful evergreen tree and it's going to have pretty purple flowers in the spring. So, uh, lots of choices for you. Okay, so my understanding, because my concern was that a certain trees wouldn't grow near mesquite, but you're saying that's not the case. No, that's not the case. Other mesquites, uh, the, okay. the trees have evolved to be able to keep their own, <laughs> to keep their kids from staying at home, so to speak. <laughs> mesquite, mm-hmm. but you know, and and the proof of this is that if you if you go and cut down a big mesquite tree, pretty soon you'll have uh, little mesquite trees coming up everywhere, and it'll be the biggest thorniest mess you've ever had. And many a South Texas rancher has learned that to their dismay because they took out. 10 big mesquite trees and they got a thousand you know small spiny ones so uh uh no it's uh there's nothing there that's going to hurt other trees that you want to plant around it other than other mesquite trees okay all right thank you very much you are certainly welcome you have a wonderful sunday thank you for the call all right uh let's see chris we better get a break out of the way here ray will be up and then we'll go right down the list when we come back South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Ray and Susan and Rory, and uh, Ray is up first. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, sir. I'm calling morning. to see about, yeah, I was calling to see about what your thoughts are on a plant called uh, Little Volcano, Most Potato. I think that's what it's called. Elliot, yeah, it's they, yeah, they, they, it's it's commonly called bush clover. Um, okay. It's an interesting plant. It's uh, you know it's not a shrub and it's not a super long live plant. I I 
think of them as an annual and quite frankly to me they're sort of a novelty they're unique they have pretty flowers but they don't have the mass of flowers that some other things do so uh yeah. if you feel like you've already got all the common ones out there then uh, lespedeza is its botanical name um it is kind of a fun plant to have but it's not going to be super long lived and it's never going to be just a solid mass of flowers but uh, it's a, it's a it's a pretty plant and i guess the best way i can put it if you don't ask too much of it it's a pretty plant it's uh um, it, it certainly doesn't compare to a hibiscus or to an esperanza or something like that as far as number of flowers, but it's, it's sort of a unique plant. It's a legume. It's, uh, uh, it's an interesting plant. I'll put it that way. Good enough. Good enough. I'll just cross it off my list. Next question. <laughs> oh. I've got a root, root beer plant, Oja Santa, and I've got uh-huh. ants uh, growing on the leaves, uh-huh. and, I, and the leaves are gnarled. They're not dried out. Or, and something's been eaten on them. What can I put on there to keep the ants off and whatever's been eaten on the leaves? Okay, that's a good question. Let's talk about Ohasata uh, for a moment. It, they Most of them suffered some damage in the winter months, which is probably the leaves are a little bit deformed. But the reason the ants usually are on there is because you have some other insect that is leaving a... Uh, uh, excretion uh, that they call honeydew. Most common thing would be aphids. I think if you look very carefully, you'll see little either yellow or green aphids on there. Um, less common are scale and mealybugs. All of those things, I think you can control pretty well with the spinosad soap that we were just talking about. Right. And, uh, it's not, it's not toxic, but you do need, it is a contact killer, so you'll definitely have to get it on things. But don't worry so much about spraying it on the ants as you do spraying it on the stems and leaves of your hosanta, because, uh, it, once you, once you kill the other insects that are leaving the sugary poop on there, then the ants will go away. Good enough. Last question. My wife wants to know, she got a poinsettia last Christmas, mm-hmm. and of course she wants to know how to get it to bloom. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, the thing that makes poinsettias turn color to bloom and turn color and then bloom is natural day length. Uh, poinsettias are what we call short day plants, and they are able chemically... It's a very complex process that I won't bore you to death with. But they can tell when the days get shorter and shorter and shorter, as normally happens in the fall. And that's why they always come into bloom naturally around December. So the main thing that she has to do is be sure that her plant is in an area that is not getting any artificial light at night. Uh, you know, people bring them inside to protect them from the cold. They put them in the living room where the lights are on. And the plant thinks, oh, it's still July. I've got nice long days so i'm not going to bother to bloom so the main thing she will have to do is either keep it in a place best thing to do is find a place outside where it doesn't uh uh, where it doesn't get any light at night. You don't want to put it right under a porch light, but put it where it gets uh, what it needs to grow well. And then hopefully she won't have to bring it in. If she does have to bring it in or you have to bring it in for her, which is certainly the case in a lot of areas, um, what you need to be sure that you do is when you bring it inside every afternoon about 5 o'clock, you got to take it and put it in a dark closet and then bring it out the next morning. Uh, some people just hear half that story. They stick it in the closet and they call me six weeks later and say that plant's been in the closet for six weeks and it looks terrible yeah it doesn't stay in the closet but you're 
moving it in and out so that it's always getting the same amount of light that it would get outside. If you do that and don't miss a single day, then it will bloom right on time for you. Now, the other thing I'll tell you about that is once that poinsettia starts to color up, once you start seeing the red pigment in those bracts, then you don't have to worry about day length. Once this process of blooming starts, uh, it's irreversible, so you can stop worrying about whether the days are long or short. But up until you start seeing that color, you've just got to be sure that every day that it gets light during the time the sun's out and it gets dark during the time that it isn't. Poinsettias are so sensitive. We have one grower that uh, has a whole big whole collection of greenhouses, one behind the other, behind the, behind the other. And uh, at one point, they were having trouble. All the poinsettias turned color except for the ones uh, in the front greenhouse. When they researched it, they figured out there's a little bend in the highway in front of the greenhouse, and just car headlights flashing in all night long was enough to keep them from turning color. So they're real sensitive about that. But as long as you give them natural day length, uh, she doesn't have to do anything else to get it to bloom beautifully. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. You get out and have a great uh, Sunday, right? Let's we'll see here. Yeah, we'll uh, move right along, and uh, we'll talk to Susan next. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Bob. I think um, you make Chris's I... day when you call him. Oh, because my gosh. <laughs> 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 <All right. laughs> There's a long story behind that. Everybody else listening will tell it another time, but I'm glad to hear from you. How can I help today? Well, and every time I come into your nursery, I ask for him because I really want to put a face to a name. But well, um, I have. Go ahead. Chris is back at the station. He's rarely around the nursery, but <laughs> anyway, we'll find a way for you to meet him one of these days. Okay. <laughs> um, I have two questions for you. Um, the first is we have some Vitek that go down. I believe that's the name that go down the side of our driveway between us and our neighbor's yard. Uh-huh. They're really. They're really her bushes. But I think over the years, you know, we're still addressing, we're in our second year, year here now and addressing things that have happened in the last decade. Right. And the branches, you know, it's beautiful and it's a vigorous grower, but they arch over into our driveway and run into our cars and all that. Mm-hmm. How do we, I mean, we're on good terms with our neighbor, so it's fine to see about trimming them, but how do we go about trimming them? Because right now they're all full of, awkward angles from people trimming them just to get rid of you know this branch that scratches your car and that one that goes that way so how do we address that well you know pruning is is half science and half art and vitex do they're they're extraordinarily hardy plants are totally deer resistant they're drought resistant they just have a hundred good qualities but um, their negative quality is that they don't always have real good shape when they grow and one when you've got a big plant that has for years grown any way it wanted to it's sometimes hard to get it back conform to the shape that you would really like it's something that um, people that plant vitex always tell them you know early on start pruning it to keep it to the size and shape that you want at this point you just you're gonna have to I guess the best way I could put it uh, is sculpt it, so to speak. And if you have to take a bunch of growth primarily off of one side so that it's not scraping on your vehicle, you probably want to take a similar 
amount off the other side just, you know, to sort of balance it, so to speak. So it didn't look like the, you know, hack, whack, and stack tree trimmers that go down the road and cut things away from the power line. It just totally destroy the appearance of the trees. You're not going to hurt Vitex by pruning them, even by pruning them heavily. It's just, you know, making them look nice while you do so. And it's not something you can just go in there with the shears and just lop the side off of it. You really need to go through limb by limb and take out the offending ones and then try to, you can, you can direct the new growth, so to speak, if you're, and this would be so much easier to do with the blackboard. But let's say you've got that limb that's coming out over your driveway. And it's got little side limbs coming out, some of them pointing straight up, some of them pointing left, some of them pointing right, some of them pointing down. When you cut back that limb that's the offending limb over the driveway, cut it back just in front of another little limb that if that limb grew out, it would be growing the right direction. In other words, it would be growing up or it would be growing in a direction opposite from where, from where your driveway is. So it's, you're going to make it look a little awkward at first, but everywhere that you're cutting that limb, choose your spot very carefully and cut it just beyond a smaller limb that's pointing the correct direction. Direction. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Okay. Um, it is it is compounded by it is growing under a tangle of I don't know what that's in my neighbor's yard that looks mm-hmm. like the haunted mansion because of all these huge long branches that look to me like they're trying to get to light because mm-hmm. we have live oaks that are so but it just looks yeah not very healthy. And, and, they will, and that's unfortunately going to be an increasing problem because Vitex wants the fullest, hottest, brightest sun, and the day is going to come when the oaks have simply made it too shady for the Vitex to do well. And that's just kind of uh, planning what looks pretty today without thinking like about what it's going to look like 10 or 15 years down the road. So I, you may have to prune on other things beside the Vitex to uh, to correct that and... Uh, uh, again, it's not something you're going to do in an afternoon, and it's something you're going to have to study carefully. And if they are indeed tied up with a hundred other things, uh, like oaks or like other things growing there, I would tend to prune the other trees first, and then the vitex are the ones that are in the driveway that are causing the big problem. But I, I prune out some of the things that are competing with the vitex then i'd stand back and look at it before i started trimming on the vitex itself and i'm telling you this just trying to visualize in my head what you're looking at every day but uh again if that makes sense that's that would be my approach to it okay okay i may bring you a picture of what i'm looking at well and and Uh that would be just fine too and when you're talking to this neighbor that you're on good terms with and and i'm sure they would realize it too but um it find a nice way to say if these things don't come out just totally beautifully uh it's not necessarily because i pruned on them they're not coming out beautifully because that tree's making it shadier and shadier and shadier i don't want you to get the blame for the decline in the vitex when the oaks are the ones that uh that deserve that blame but over the years this is going to be a a problem because uh and and I've got Vitex where I've got big oak trees too, and uh, fortunately it's not doesn't really bother me that they get kind of one sided, but uh, it, it's a very common problem. But they they I just want them to realize that they're going into going to go into more and more of a decline from lack of light, not from anything that Susan has or hasn't done to them. Okay, 
Um, I do have a second, totally unrelated question for you. Okay. Um, I heard you mention yesterday talking about thrip, uh, predators for thrips. Uh-huh. And we have horses, and where we mm-hmm. lived previously, we had used fly predators with great success. Right. Um, is that something that works well here, because this climate being so hot? And yes. Then B, yeah. is it too late in the year to start them? Are for the thrips or for the flies? For flies. You know, it is late in the year. It is better done in the spring, but... Um, my general thought would be use spinosad for your fly control now and next year start a little bit earlier with your fly predators. You'll get some results, uh, but you're not going to get the level of control that you would if you started earlier in the year. Spinosad is one of the best fly killers in the world, and so far as I know, it is totally safe uh, for cattle and horses. Uh, I use it as, I just spray it directly on the cow's back for fly control, and uh, I've, I've asked the Spinosad people about it, and they say, well, that's what we'd have to call an off-label use because we haven't <laughs> done all the research to, uh, you know, they have to they have to provide our crazy Oh, government, we won't go any further than that. With proof, anything they put on that bottle, they have to have paid a lot of money to get proof that it is absolutely accurate. Um, it's as ridiculous as uh, oh, some of, the, some of the laws that they have to get a separate license to grow 10 different kinds of tomatoes. They can't just get one thing that allows them to grow all tomatoes under the organic, organic program. But again, don't get me started on that. But uh, it is safe for the animals, but in many cases, the Spinosad packagers have not put that on the label simply because it had cost them a few thousand dollars extra to document what they're putting on the label. So um, I, it, in my case, I would probably you know, use the Spinosad for fly control at the, this point and start with your fly predators um, you know, mid-spring next year. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Well, thank Very you again good. for your time. Yeah, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It always pushes, puts a smile on my face. You know, the way that Chris and I work <laughs> since we're six miles apart here is that, uh, you know, he just texts me the, the names of people as they come up and, and he texts me Susan Kaching. <laughs> and it always, always puts a smile on my face. So you have a wonderful Sunday and we'll talk again. All <laughs> thank right. you thank so you, much. Bob. Ah, goodbye. And so that all of you are not thinking, what is that crazy fool talking about? My engineer, Chris, is a character, to say the least. And if you sound like you have a sense of humor, you may get teased a little bit. And he had uh, semi-convinced Susan one day that she had to pay per question to ask her questions. Everything we do is absolutely free. But anyway, that's what we're making fun of at this point. Right now, he's going to run some commercials. We're going to come right back and uh, take some more phone calls, starting with Rory. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning. It's going to be Rory and Martin and Ed, and Rory is up first. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Uh, Morning's off to a good start. It's going to be a nice Sunday. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I got two questions for you. We bought some property up by Hillsborough. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Beautiful cattle ranch. And we noticed that there was some bare spots out there, like 100-foot radius. 
and okay. got talking to the lady, and it turned out she had a 35-gallon sprayer. She didn't know what it was in it, so mm-hmm. she sprayed. turned out to be Remedy. Okay. Well, it killed everything. It's bare. What mm-hmm. can we do? I thought molasses or something. What would help bring that back? Molasses would be a good start. Um, I'm going to tell you to, <clears throat> excuse me, pick up a phone at some point and call Medina Agriculture over in Hondo. Uh, Stuart mm-hmm. Frankie is just a super nice guy, and Stuart has years of experience. I don't know how much he's uh, done with Remedy, but, you know, when uh, when you put out Remedy, which is a horrible product, uh, in my mm-hmm. opinion, but they tell you to put it out mixed with diesel. And the remedy probably killed more of the brushy stuff, and it's the diesel that is keeping the grasses and things from regrowing. So your molasses is going to totally take care of the diesel. It's, in effect, going to turn it into fertilizer, the microbes it's going to stimulate there. But uh, I would call and ask Stuart because he he may actually have a microbial concoction, so to speak. Uh, he does this mm-hmm. for agriculture all the time. He's got things that... Uh, People can spray on the foliage of their plants, which are nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which in effect helps the plants to uh, make their own fertilizer, so to speak. And he's cleaned up oil spills. He's cleaned up saltwater contamination from old well sites and things like that. The the guy has literally worked all over the world in bioremediation. And so he Uh knows a heck of a lot more about it than I do. I'm like you. I would start with, uh, I probably would start with molasses, and I'd start with some of this Medina soil activator this is what they've used down along the coast where they had salt water uh, uh, come in over a lot of things and it's worked extremely well but uh, again that that's what I would do but I wouldn't hesitate to call Stuart he's a heck of a nice guy and he might have something additional that he can recommend to you but I'm pretty sure you can get that turned around very quickly okay that sounds good and my second question is um on the back of this property, it's got a creek going through it. It's probably mm-hmm. 15 foot deep, and they've had a lot of rain up there. Right. And so far, we've lost in areas 5 to 10 feet of property because of erosion. Is there any right. type of erosion control programs you know about? Well, there are plants which will do, you know, a great deal to help control erosion. Of course, you have to manage your grazing so that... Uh, um, the cattle or whatever you're running don't eat down the plants. And um, I, the place that I would, two places that I would call. First, I would call uh, Dean Williams with Douglas King Seed, and he uh-huh. could probably tell you what he would recommend that would be the best plant out there for year-round erosion control. Is there a lot of brush up and down this creek area, or is it pretty sunny? No, what it is is... It- used to be brush, and the previous owners cleared all the brush off of it, and now it's just mm-hmm. like drop-offs straight down okay. 15 okay. feet. And it's sandy well, home soil, so every time it goes, we have it just sloughs off. Yeah, and then, just, that, that's in a way... It, in, in a way, that's good because you've got enough sunlight, and he's probably going to recommend either a grass or a sedge that has a real dense root system, uh, and that's going to be your best erosion control. So that's where I would start. 
Uh, beyond that, you might call Texas Parks and Wildlife and ask for somebody in their non-game division because they uh-huh. they do a lot of work in riparian areas, you know, which is just the fancy word for streamside, and they may right. have suggestions and. Uh, um, I mean, they're, our tax dollars support them, so I don't have any problem asking them for help periodically. But um, Dean's the guy who will know specifically what plants would be appropriate. Uh, Parks and Wildlife, and I'm sure they have an office. They have they have what they call district leaders that each have 20 or 30 counties that they're responsible for. Get with your district leader for your area up there, and he can probably give you a little bit more specific information. Okay. Well, I sure do appreciate the help very much. Now, I have a question for you. How are you going to manage to handle it when you can actually stick a shovel 12 inches into the soil without hitting a rock? This is going to be a big, big change. (laughs) (laughs) I say jokingly. No, I've got a skid steer, and also it's got a post hole digger in it, and I've got one for a three-point tractor that both for rock. It doesn't dig yep. up there with the teeth on it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a a real change for you uh, gardening in that kind of soil <laughs> compared to what's around here. But uh, anyway, I wish you good luck with it, Rory. Call anytime we can help. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. Tell you what, I'm going to go ahead and get Chris to run the last commercial break so we'll know exactly how much time we have left divided between Martin and Ed. So we'll be right back. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone calls. We've got 10 minutes left, so there's going to be plenty of time uh, to talk to both Martin and Ed. And Martin is up first. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning on this beautiful Sunday? Off to a good start and had a lot of a lot of good callers, a lot of fun questions, and just some fun with uh, things in general this morning. So it's going to be a good day. Already has been. Hope it stays that way. All right. First thing, is it true you got to have two peach trees in order for them to really produce good? They will produce better with uh, two trees. And here's the reason why. Mother Nature wants as much genetic diversity as possible, so it doesn't want trees self-pollinating themselves, so to speak. And some types of fruit trees, we do have what are called self-fertile trees, which um, which will produce without a second tree. But with most varieties of peaches, the pollen, the male part of the tree, doesn't you know, is is not receptive at the same time as the female part of the tree is. So it's better if you have actually two or three different varieties. Uh, so you're always going to get more peaches where you can get what we call cross-pollination. You'll always get a few peaches, even if you just have one tree. But if you are able to have a second tree, especially a second, a different variety, uh, you'll always get more peaches because of the cross-pollination. So, yes. Uh, it is good to have two trees, not absolutely mandatory, but you'll certainly get much better production with two trees, and that's why. Okay, second question. I'm digging up my dead grapefruit tree stump. Okay. And I'm planning, I, I'm getting ready to plant a pear tree in there. How long yes, should I wait for that soil to deteriorate the old roots before I can put my pear tree in there? Oh, five or ten minutes. 
That's all. <laughs> it's not going to be a problem to you. Um, it's good that you're getting rid of the stump. But the main thing that's going to happen, was this a big grapefruit tree that froze? Yes, it was. Okay. As as the roots rot, you know, the soil's going to collapse. Uh, I've got spots in a couple of my pastures where there used to be big old trees, and now there's a hole that's three feet wide and five feet deep in the ground where an old stump rotted away. Now, you've gotten the stump out, so, uh, you know, that's not going to be that much of an issue. But fully expect that as your pear tree grows, that soil's going to kind of collapse around here and there, and you're going to have to come bring a little bit more back in as over the years those those roots rot away. But there's nothing in the soil that's going to keep your pear tree from growing well so uh i wouldn't I, I wouldn't necessarily plant it right on top of where the old stump was but uh no reason to put it off the sooner you get that pear tree in there and growing the sooner you're going to get good pears but i will tell you with pears just like peaches it's pretty much mandatory that you have a second tree so uh with pears unless you have two trees two varieties you're not going to get very good production at all. So uh, either get a second tree of the same variety, which would be good, get a second tree of a different variety, which would be even better uh, when you plant your pears. Okay. And my final question is for the young lady that called earlier wanting to know where she could buy citrus trees. Uh-huh. I don't know if I can give the name of the place out over the, over the network, oh, can I? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, go right ahead. A couple of months ago, I purchased a tangerine and a pear tree at the Costco stores, mm-hmm. Costco Wholesale, Yeah, and they had a yeah. big variety of them. And they apparently had a contract. Now, pear trees are no problem because uh, there's no restriction. They can ship all the pears in the world in from California and other places. But apparently Costco, and I know one of the military bases, apparently had a prearrangement with one of the citrus growers so that they could get them. But they're kind of in the same position that we as nursery people are in. We're getting the trees that we had ordered way back, but uh, they're not letting us increase the size of our orders uh Anything that we want above and beyond what we'd already scheduled, um, we're, it's going to be somewhere down the road before we get them. Uh, Costco doesn't know anything about trees, so she needs to inform herself well before she goes looking for them. But it'd certainly be an okay place to look. But uh, it's not like Costco's able to keep bringing them in, bringing them in when no one else can. Uh, I'm afraid that that may have been a one-time event, and you just got really lucky to find what you needed at that time. But, no, I have no problem with you telling us where you managed to find things. Okay, on my, okay, the last question. On my citrus trees that died, and now I got the sprouts coming out at the ground, mm-hmm. do I cut that old stump out, or that old trunk out? If you're going to plant a new citrus tree, yes, you probably should. But what you can do, if you like, is you can let, because what's coming out now is not the original citrus tree, obviously. It's, it's sprouting off the rootstock. But uh, you sound like a pretty capable guy. There's no reason you couldn't let that rootstock grow out a bit and then simply regraft it. Rather than buying a new lemon tree, you could go back onto that rootstock and you could regraft some Myers lemon back on onto it or some ponderosa or whatever you wanted so 
Um, for a lot of people, yeah, it'd be better for them to take it out and plant a new tree. But uh, you obviously are pretty familiar with uh, with trees of all sorts, and there's nothing wrong with letting the root system grow out or letting the rootstock grow out, and then going back and regrafting that same rootstock with uh, you could even put two or three different kinds of citrus on the same tree. Okay. All righty, Bob. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. You get in and have a good Sunday, Martin, and we'll finish up the show with Ed. Uh, good morning, Ed. Good morning, Mr. Bob. Good morning, sir. Question. Plumbago. I had a big plumbago bush that uh, froze, mm-hmm. and uh, I did not take and cut the the frozen stock out of there. I just let it grow itself back. Sure. And uh, it's not blooming. I've got maybe one or two blooms on the thing. It's a big bush now, but uh, mm-hmm. what would be your suggestion to get some blooms? Patience. You know, it's not the fact that you didn't cut it back. That has absolutely nothing to do with it. But uh, when when things freeze as hard as they froze this year, uh, they have to grow a while. But and they have to, for whatever reason, it takes them longer to come back into bloom. Now, once they do come back into bloom, things will go back to totally what you're used to. But uh, the example that I see every time we've got this beautiful non hardy tree called a Hong Kong orchid tree out in our parking lot. When we have several warm winters in a row, that tree practically blooms year-round. Every time it freezes back, it takes a year before we see the first bloom. This year, I've already got growth on it out there that's six and eight feet long, but I know it's going to be, it's not going to be in bloom for another year, no matter how big it gets. There's simply something on some plants about them that when they freeze that hard, uh, they have to go through a, you know, a, a more extended period of time before they go back to blooming well, and that's what you're looking at there. And unfortunately, if you if you're in a big big hurry to have flowers, you better go out and buy some new plumbago. But if you okay. leave the old stuff, there, no, this is months. a real nice bush. Yeah, yeah. I was just, just wondering them- about fertilizing if that would do any good. But oh, uh, absolutely, what you're saying makes sense. Yeah, fertilizing would certainly help. It'll give you a bigger bush so that when it does bloom, you'll have more flowers. But fertilizing won't speed the flowering up. It'll just be sure there's more of it out there when it does happen. Okay. Like you say, patience. (laughs) I think the little boy's prayer is, Dear Lord, give me patience and please hurry. Yes. Do your best on that one, Ed, and uh, yeah, your plant bag will be back for you. But uh, again, nothing wrong with going to a nursery and getting a couple of new plants planting in there with it if you want to see flowers more quickly. But uh, your other one will come back. I can pretty much guarantee you that. Oh, by fall, you're gonna you're gonna wonder why you're ever worried about it. It's gonna have so many flowers on it. Wonderful, wonderful. Tell your sidekick that Mister Caesar will see him in a few days. Mr. Caesar will come see Dr. Kirby in a few days. He just walked in and sat down next to me, so he's been informed. You get out and have a good Sunday. 